The Tom Woods Show, episode 1535. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. I have the pleasure of introducing our next speaker, a quiet sort. Some of you may know him as a junior sidekick to Bob Murphy. Actually, Tom Woods has apparently degrees from Harvard and Columbia, Ivy League degrees. Uh, he is a, a prolific author, writer, speaker, someone who probably communicates as good as or better than anyone in our movement. And he is here to introduce Dr. Ron Paul for a live episode of Contra excuse me, of the Tom Woods Show. Please welcome Tom Woods. Um, actually, he. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't want everyone to know this, but he's about to jet off to Vienna to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Austrian Economics Center there. So congratulations for that, Tom. Are you, uh, are you old enough for a Lifetime Achievement Award? That's the question. Thank you, Jeff. Well, as it happens, Bob Murphy is uh, keynoting the conference where I'm receiving the award. Now, don't tell him I said this, but... My joke at the beginning of my acceptance speech where I thank people who have helped me get to this point is I'm going to thank Bob for having been a longtime colleague and collaborator together and for being just lousy enough of an economist not to win the award himself so I could sneak in and win it. Because you know if it were reversed, he'd have some dig at me. Anyway, before we bring up the... Uh, the hero who's, who's in the room, I do want to tell you one thing that just landed today. We've all heard the argument that war is good for the economy. I mean, it is such a blockheaded argument on so many levels. And the great economic historian Robert Higgs, who is loved by all libertarians everywhere, has done more than anybody to demolish that down to the last detail. And by the way, Robert Higgs, like all good libertarians, loves the Mises Institute and has, can't say uh, good enough things about it. But anyway, it's not just that war is bad for the economy, as we all know, but even the military state, you know, a regime like we have now that is addicted to war and the preparation for war, even the constant preparation for war, the military-industrial complex has negative consequences for the economy. And these consequences are ones that I bet even the astute people in this room may not have thought of. So one thing I'm known for, in addition to being the king of the airport, I'm the king of ebooks. I release a lot of free ebooks. Well, my friends, I got a brand new one. And this one is called The Pentagon Versus the Economy. It just came out. Thank you. Scott Horton is applauding over here. Just came out. You can get this thing for nothing. It will be sent to you instantly. If you take out your cell phone that you all were being polite and you turned off, well, that was wrong. You should have it on because I'll send you the Pentagon versus the economy right now for nothing. You got to text the word Pentagon. So, of course, the deep state is going to be tracking you now. <laughs> text the word Pentagon to the following number, 33444. You text the word Pentagon to 33444, and you'll get the Pentagon versus the economy. All right. Now, having said that, I would like to bring to the stage, Christy, are we ready for this? Okay. I'd like to bring to the stage a guy we all know as the great hero of liberty, and who, without a doubt, and I don't mean to damn him with faint praise, I, I mean to, for everybody to appreciate what we're in the presence of here, he truly is 
the greatest congressman in American history. By far. I mean, who could possibly touch him? Maybe, you know, John Randolph of Roanoke or something 200 years ago. I don't know. It was, is slightly in the ballpark. I have no idea. But it is my great pleasure to introduce to you for a live episode of my podcast, The Tom Woods Show, the great Ron Paul. So, welcome. Okay. All right. I think I should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> Have a seat. <laughs> he says, I think I should quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, the theme of our event, of course, is um, the election and state propaganda. So the questions I have for you revolve around that. And I want to start by going a little bit into the past and then lead up to the present. I want to go back to the first Ron Paul presidential campaign. You remember there was a Fordham sociology professor named Paul Levinson who was on the left but who observed the phenomenon of the media blackout of Ron Paul and thought, this is worthy of study. This is so creepy and bizarre. I have to do some scholarly work on it. And I'm sure you remember this as well as, as we do. There was a – this might have been in 2012. There was a quarter in 2012 where – well, I forget which campaign it was, but there was a quarter where you came in second in fundraising of all the candidates. And MSNBC put on the screen the number one fundraiser, the number three, the number four. Number two did not exist. I mean, number two, I mean, if he had been number 28, that'd be one thing. Number two was left out. This kept happening and kept happening. So I wonder if you would comment on that. I mean, what did you, how did you compute that at the time? And why do you think that was? They didn't like what I was saying. <laughs> no, and they didn't want to give me any credibility, so that, that's obviously the, the case. And uh, actually, at the time, I wasn't really aware of exactly what was going on. I was, I was pretty busy, and it was afterwards I said, holy man, I was doing pretty well then. I didn't realize how well I was doing. <laughs> so I, I was pleased with how I was doing afterwards. But there was, uh, you know, a lot of cases like that. Uh, the media was not exactly a friend of a libertarian. It's, it's interesting, but, I mean, do you think it was the war issue? Do you think it was the Fed? Do you think it was both? Do you think it was the whole package? Truth. I don't think they want to hear the truth. So I think it's general because if you're credible is what they have to stop you. So there will be these, all these issues and everybody will have it. But overall, the media just does not want, want it. And I think what bothered the most, it wasn't uh, – my approach has not been confrontational and a lot of noise and screaming and calling names and even being partisan. It was just trying to put the message out there and let it stand on its own. And I think they had trouble – with that, and that's why exclusion was their technique, try to just pretend he doesn't exist and uh, get less attention. But what I was surprised about and what I discovered, there were a lot of people like you out there and, and heard it. That, that was a surprise to me. They're more friends than I realized. So I'm delighted that there are a lot of friends of liberty. Besides, our numbers are growing, and that's what's exciting. What amazed me was how ordinary people fought back against this blackout. You remember we had – there was the Ron Paul blimp. People donated for there to be a blimp flying over America saying Google Ron Paul. Or there was – I remember there was a night that we, we designated Paint the Town Ron. And overnight, you were to go in your town – and hang up Ron Paul signs so that when everybody woke up the next morning, your town would be plastered with Ron Paul signs. Now, 
we tried to keep this on private property because of our <laughs> beliefs, but maybe we weren't always so good with that. But I'll just say I might have had something to do with that in Auburn, Alabama in 2008. And they woke up the next day. Or there was a website, ronpaulaween.com. And on Halloween, you would hand out Ron Paul literature because the kids will love that. They had ronpaulmask.com. You could go as Ron Paul. I mean, it was... You have to give them credit. They tried as hard as they could. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of those things. I'm just wondering. I don't remember the Halloween stuff. They probably didn't have to do much on a new costume. They just put up a bad picture. Is that what they <laughs> yeah, did? Yeah, that's right. yeah they, they, they'll always have the most unflattering picture yeah. of you in the media. So, so now I guess my question is, going up to the present, we look at what Donald Trump is facing, and it is obvious, I think, that there is some kind of deep state operation going on here. I mean, you know, um, you don't need to be a brain surgeon to see that. But yet Trump is not – it's not like he's hes not a libertarian. He doesn't have, I don't think, first principles that he's thought about deeply. And yet they still – and he's not really totally sound on foreign policy either. And yet they come at him like crazy. So what do you think – can you describe for us what you think you would have faced as President Ron Paul if he's facing this? Well, under today's circumstances or circumstances back then, if you do exactly what's right and, and you have an impact, you're not going to be there very long. You know, they, they would get rid of you. <laughs> I, I think physically they'd get rid of a person like that or uh, they'd have the impeachment going on. Otherwise, you'd, in order to do it, you'd have to have a scheme of gradualism, which doesn't work. So in the campaigns, I always had a scheme of gradualism rather than saying, you, you know, when they asked me about my foreign policy, it wasn't difficult. Just bring the troops home. They, we just marched in, just marched home. So it wasn't complicated. <laughs> But uh, the truth is, is when, when they would ask for a detailed explanation about it, I would say that uh, I think we were building the, ba the embassy at, at Baghdad, and it was going to cost a billion dollars. So I said, look, uh, if we're going to work our way out of this, this is what we have to do. Cut the billion, put half of it toward the debt, and put the other half to taking care of, make sure the kids who become dependent on medical care until we tied them over and work out a better system. And, uh, and that's what could be done. And if you systematically did that in 10 years, you know, it'd be cleaned up. But I also knew absolutely that would never happen in Washington. But it could be done. And the uh, same way with, with the Federal Reserve, you could wean them off. But that's not going to happen. There's too much at stake. And uh, they, they won't permit it. And there would be violence if you were able to do it. So in many ways, they have to hear what the alternative and what the process is. And they say, well, you don't like the foreign policy. What should you do? Explain to us what it is. We'll start with the Constitution. What authority do you have to march around the world and you know, participate in regime change? You don't have it. So uh, you define it and you should get people. Once again, we're back to where we are today, talking about the army out there of people who are looking for truth and changing attitudes and uh, the attitudes in Washington, it's not an accident. It's all a reflection, say, of the economic policy that was totally prevailing until Austrian economics came about. And with the help of you and Lou and all the others, there's a lot more people. But, uh, you know, still, 
the people who are pouring out our universities, they're all Keynesians. You know, they're, they all believe in the Fed, and, and there really isn't any, any difference between the parties. They're interventionists, they're big government, they're Federal Reserve, they're interventions overseas. They don't care about privacy. The big pretense, and uh, I'll probably mention this later if I'm still going to have another talk later, but the, the, the parties really aren't in opposition that they pretend. It's all about power. That, that's what it's about. Uh, they don't have a philosophic principle because you say, well, the Democrats used to be um, you know, more opposed to war, but whose war in Syria is it? It's Hillary's and Obama's. You know, Assad has to go. It's still, that's what Trump's really following right now, too. So there's a lot, and Dale, you know, certainly uh, touched on this, how the propaganda tools are. But uh, there's something over and above even Trump that uh, the propagandists uh, control. Uh, but I think what's going on, there's an additional factor in trying to get rid of Trump. Because there, there's hatred. We say he just they just hate him. And, and they do, but I think I think it starts. This is just a, a little theory for me. I think it starts with jealousy. I think people are just unbelievably jealous of Trump. Can you imagine how many people he has talked to with large crowds as a president for three years? I bet he's talked to more people than all the other presidents put together in a personal way. I think it drives the liberals nuts because he's popular and they're jealous. So where the hatred is uh, is driven, and just have, listen to Hillary, it's driven to the people, the deplorables. Those are the people they really hate because they, you know, sanctioned this, and yet, yet Trump, Trump is the one they say, well, he's he's really the bad person. But I think I think the bad people are the one that creates the hate and also can't handle their jealousies. You know, they 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 just how could this guy be popular enough for these crowds to come out? So we have to destroy him because uh, he he might not be telling the truth as we want him to tell it, but he certainly is fantastic on challenging political correctness, who, was, who has the group that's been totally in charge with all the information. So it really drives the left nuts, and they, took, they turn that into, into hatred against Trump. To my mind, one of the creepiest things about the propaganda that comes from the U.S. media is the groupthink that comes out of the media, that they all think the same way to the point where they, they all use the same language. Like when Trump did this, you know, his semi-withdrawal from Syria. This was referred to as reckless by every media person. The word, it was almost as if they all got a text. We're all going to use the word reckless to describe this. Every single one reckless. But they've never, when was the last time they used the word reckless to describe getting into a war? It, he recklessly got us into this. They never think that way. So what do you think is going on? Like, or, or this whole phenomenon of if you disagree with this or that issue, you must be a Russian plant or a stooge of some kind. Anytime I hear somebody say that, I assume I'm either dealing with a stooge or somebody with a very low IQ. As soon as I'm accused of being a Russian, whatever, okay, well, this person's not worth talking to. But all this stuff, like reckless to, used to, to refer to a withdrawal, but never used to refer to getting into it. How do we account for this unbelievable groupthink? 
Well, you know, I think, I think they do this, uh, even though I still argue basically policies never change. And yet, why did they do this and how do they get away with it? But I think it's social. I think the far left have social, you know, habits and, and beliefs that contradict the conservative uh, person uh, and living standard. So, but they, I think the main thing is, uh, is power that they're looking for. And how do you counteract it? I think that's what that's what we do, and that's uh, and that was uh, what that was probably the uh, first thing. Well, how could I contribute back in 1973 uh, to you know announce for the first time for Congress? It was just try to send out a different message, and I thought it would be one person talking for a little bit, and I could go back to my medical practice, and uh, and so this this is what everybody has something to do. And, and try to counteract that. And I think it's been talked about already today that that, that, that job is a, is a big job. But uh, the driving force is power. It seems to contradict what I'm saying because they're so different. They want to do things. But not really. On the big issues, trying to think of a significant big issue where it's clear-cut difference, maybe verbally and maybe there are pretense and all the talk is a little bit different to appeal to certain groups. But the, the bottom line is, is uh, you know, Democrats used to be, uh, you know, against the war. And they were really always for war. Now they're becoming outwardly pro-war. But uh, they're just joining more Republicans. And, uh, and it's, it's who gets to pull the strings and who gets to write the checks and which uh, political group is going to have the benefit. So it is a money game. But I don't even know if they discuss the whole things about, you know, the way it works. Every newspaper saying that using the same words and television say using the same word. Who's who's behind that and who writes this? I, well, uh, you don't know exactly. Uh, maybe it's somebody at New York Times or what. But the whole thing is, is uh, we need to get our message out. We should be writing the message. And as long as we're telling the truth, the best of our ability, I still think uh, we'll win. I think one of the weapons in their arsenal is to take an independent thinker like a Ron Paul, and if they can't keep him out of the media, portray him as crazy. Like, you must be crazy, man, with your crazy ideas. And yet, the, they never say John McCain was crazy for wanting to get, again, get the U.S. into uh, the most preposterous wars imaginable. That's not crazy. Or incarcerating millions of people for victimless crimes, that's not crazy. Saying we shouldn't do those things, now that's crazy. That crazy narrative <laughs> is to make people scared of supporting you. And it is just conditioning, it's propaganda, and, and the truth is, is most people, you know, are followers, you know, they, they just go along on what they hear, which shouldn't discourage us. There's, uh, I remember Leonard Reed used to talk a lot about that. You don't have to worry about getting that 51% to not fall in line with this. We just have to have a louder voice and get the people to go along. Generally, you know, there's always going to be people that are going to come along, go along, and and they like to fit into the group. But I think a group like this, I would uh, hope that we can think more of ourselves that we're participating in, in putting a message out there that should replace this message that, that they've been used uh, against it. But I think that's where things are coming. I think our message is getting stronger and, and more refined. 
But the real reason why we should be excited is the total failure of all their lies and the failure of the foreign policy, the failure of the Fed. Pretty soon I won't even have to have a bill in there to get audit the Fed. The Fed's going to self-destruct and we can all cheer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sometimes we can get discouraged because it seems the odds we face are so overwhelming. But this man here cut through that propaganda during those campaigns and reached a lot of people who, like most Americans, don't believe a word the government tells them about foreign policy. But nobody in public life was ever articulating that. And now it's to the point where something's about to happen next year that in the absence of a Ron Paul opening these doors is inconceivable. Our friend Scott Horton over here, maybe some of you know this, but I bet a bunch of you don't. You know Bill Crystal, the guy from the Weekly Standard magazine, May It Rest in Peace? And Bill Crystal, the he's been wrong on absolutely every issue under the sun, and yet he's on TV all the time. Scott is debating Bill Crystal in New York City on regime <laughs> change in foreign policy. And when that was announced, it sold out like that. So the organizers said, well, we're just going to find a bigger venue because we want to have as many people there as possible. So if you want to go fly to New York in May of 2020 to go support Scott Horton and watch the debate of a lifetime, it's at thesohoforum.org. Those are the details. But that wouldn't have happened. Bill Crystal, why would he feel like he needs to debate us? Because this guy cut through the propaganda and there are enough of us awake that we have to be dealt with in some way. Well, joke's on you, buddy, because the one dealing with the other one is going to be Scott dealing with Bill Crystal. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let, let's talk about the deep state, if we could. Is there such a thing, and how do you describe it? I, I definitely think there's a deep state, but I don't think it's neat and I, I, I think it's very powerful, and it's philosophic, and there's a lot of power and a lot of coalition. But if the deep state was made up of uh, 12 key people in all industries that get together and they confide and they do their emails and say, today's the day that we do this, uh, all we have to do is kill 12 people and the deep state would be gone. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a lot different than that. I think it, it, it's philosophic and it's more malleable, you know. They come together, and there's a lot of agreement because I think they have moved in the direction of opposing the, the moral standards that have existed in this country for a long time, the economic standards of free market. Even the Republicans are probably the, the ones at the, at the greatest fault because uh, they, they keep falling into the trap of saying, yeah, we want free enterprise and capitalism like we have today. They, they criticize for capitalism. And they say, oh, no, you guys are socialists and we're the good guys. But that's not true. You know, uh, we represent interventionism. So uh, I, I think it's a lot of people, but I still think it's it's philosophic. I think it's made up of key people in uh, large corporations and the media and just how they all got into their power. I think it varies. I think the people who ended up with uh, key positions in the media and, say, the movie industry or the political system, uh, I think it's a reflection of a universal philosophy. Maybe the first hundred years of our country, maybe the prevailing attitude was we, we believed in self-reliance, the work ethic, we believed in sound money and 
pretended to really follow it, and we had a gold standard and all these things. And so there, there was a, uh, a, a group of people who were uh, in the deep state, too, because behind the scenes, that's exactly what they were learning. Uh, and now that's why I, I still think uh, the deep state is a reflection of an educational system. And that, of course, is the reason why the Mises Institute is so important, all the work you do, and now so many people here prom promoting it because you're changing the attitude. So it's not so much that we can automatically just eliminate the deep state. We have to refute it. And uh, we have to substitute it, and I think that's what I think that's what's happening. And the opportunity is going to be there because the failure is out there. And you, even in, I'm getting calls now on the average uh, business TV interviews, and and they they have a lot of acknowledgement. This whole thing of negative interest rates—can you think of anything more bizarre than negative interest rates? And you know, people who are, are you would think are credible within the establishment and have been acceptable to the deep state—they're starting to roll their eyes. Like, how long can this last? And I think I think that means that uh, there's going to be a substitute and there's going to be a replacement. I think we're in the early stages of the transition, and it's not so much the attitudes have changed as they're scared to death they're going to lose the power because i think we have a difficult job because the goal isn't power you know the goal for them it's power that's what they want so they can become more ruthless and i think that's why the opposition is more violent you know they're willing to use that but uh, they're, they're going to destroy themselves and and our ideas can replace it but it's uh it's not going to be uh, real swift, and it is dangerous because when things break down, there's going to be other people who have other ideas too. Other people say, well, I've been working real hard. Let's get a couple socialists, radical socialists, communists in the Congress, and they will become our spokesmen. And, and uh, you see that movement, too. You can't ignore that. But uh, I, I think that we have to be very vocal and, and answer our question. And we need a thousand shows like you have. And we would have control. We would be the deep state. So you're the leader of the new deep state. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most interesting compliment I think I've ever received. <laughs> All right, I do want to be faithful to the event schedule, so we'll close with one final question. What encourages you these days? Well, that's a good, good question. I'll, have to, I'll actually have to think about it for, for a second. <laughs> now, what encourages me, where I get encouragement and enthusiasm, is when I come to a meeting like this. You know, I simplify it by saying, you know, I gave a lot of speeches on the House floor, and I, I would go uh, to my committee work, and I'd quiz the Federal Reserve Board chairman. And, uh, but you know what? The whole time I was there, I never got any applause. <laughs> so... <laughs> I have this big ego that I sort of fall and travel. You know, applause, that means they like what I'm saying. So, but uh, it's... Uh, now, I, and on a more personal uh, way of looking at this about uh, the excitement of people coming in our direction, I have really enjoyed the response from young people because that's why I look at an audience like this, and I am absolutely sure that every one of you are under 30, and, <laughs> and their minds are open. And, and young, people, young people are more willing uh, to look in our direction, and I've always got a big uh, enjoyment out, out of that. And uh, I'm, I am annoyed because uh, if, you, if you look at what's on TV, and there's, 
there's a reflection of the university professors and the setup and the student thing and all the junk that they're going with that political correctness. But I just don't believe that uh, that's what the university is made of. You know, at last count I had, I think we have 19 grandchildren, a bunch have been through college and all, and I don't think of them as rabble-rousers. I think of them as nice kids, and I see so many. How about in here? We have young people who go high school and college, and uh, I, I am amazed at that. That, that. that encourages me, you know, because uh, there is a reflection of uh, an in interest, and, uh, and that uh, keeps me going. And besides the other instructions that I always tried to pass out for, for uh, in a speech would be that I, I spent every speech in campaign was about an hour and 45 minutes i'll tell you how how the world is coming to an end or end next week the economy is falling apart and all these wars and then i would spend 10 or 15 minutes on the answer and be excited about it because it's fantastic and it was amazing that uh, i would think that uh, people would come up i wish you wouldn't be so negative they always come up and still to this day we like you because you're an optimist, that there's a chance and there's an answer to these things. And yet, and I wondered about this, and somebody told me, they said, well, maybe the reason is, is uh, you're more believable if you admit there's a problem. Instead of, instead of a good politician, you know, everything is rosy, it's not so bad, but we're going to make it better. All we have to do is spend more money, and we don't have to account for this. So it's, it's a, there's a big difference between that. So I, I think that uh, there's reason to be optimistic, and there's reason to not give up on the, on the young people. Uh, but it, not, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy and soft because there will be a lot of people who uh, won't like it. They're, you know, those people I were talking about that were jealous and angry, they, they'll, they'll be hanging around. But, uh, you, you know, the dependency on the state will be totally eroded, and that'll be good news. You know, uh, well, I'm entitled to it. What are you entitled to? Everything we have is, you know, negative interest rates, and the money doesn't buy anything, and we have to bring our troops home, not because Ron Paul wants to. We're bringing the troops home because we lost. We're losing all our wars. We don't even have good regime change. We just have. We just usher in new governments that are worse than the other ones. So the failure, the failure of that system is going to be what will lift us up if we stick you know, to the message and, and make the message as pure as possible and not make it like you're going to make more money and be better taken care of. It has to be a moral issue, the moral right to our, our, our life. And I am dead certain that if I could wave a wand right now, from my viewpoint, others would disagree. If we could wave a wand and have a perfectly free society, you know, the one that we talk about, property rights and no income tax and no wars, but all our wealth would be eliminated tomorrow. Uh, I would rather, if it required living with less, I would want to live in the free society. But the great thing is, is uh, if we continue to do what we're doing, we're going to have a lot less and we won't have our liberties. So there's every reason to think that if we keep moving in this direction, that we have the answer to all the mess that we have here. And there's reason to believe the freer the society, the more prosperous it is. And I, I think that's a, it's, it's a great message, but I do think it has to have a moral fiber to it because I, I think if it's just, uh, uh, you know, and that's one thing, there's been debates in the Austrian school, the utilitarians versus the uh, fundamentalists and 
and a human rights approach. And I happen to be uh, human rights, individual rights, natural rights, rather than saying. But I think the, the libertarians, economists who, who are the utilitarians, they define it because it works. So I think there's a good blend. I like to bring that together. They concentrate on why a market works, and I concentrate on why we should have a free market, and that has to do with personal liberty. Well, I would like, Dr. Paul, thank you for the time being on the, the Tom Wood Show today. This will air next week while I'm in Austria. So you see how I'm getting a little work done before I get out of the country. <laughs> so it'll air at, if, if you've never listened to my program before, tomspodcast.com. I bought that domain, tomspodcast.com. That'll run next week. Thanks, everybody. We're going to take a quick break and come right back. Thank you for doing that. Very good. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.